0: Corinthians chapter four, verses 13 through 18. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, for it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal.
1: What a privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, Chris asked if I would address one of the five solas, and I'll explain that in a minute, that come from the Reformation, one of the five distinctives of the Reformation, but really are to be the distinctive of uh, each of our lives and of this church. Now, many of you are at different stages of life than myself, but I'd like to encourage you to consider some of the things that I will say to you. This is not just for old people uh, who are nearing the end of their life to consider. This is for you to begin to think about. I believe there's a time in our lives when we begin to think more about what we're going to leave behind than how to get ahead. And when can we expect this sudden shift to come? For some, it comes earlier in life, and if you are younger, this is the time to consider some of these things, or it may come to us later in life. And there are certain kind of events that enter into our lives that trigger a transition of our thinking and of our values and priorities. For example, you, when you come to realization that the accumulation of things no longer satisfy, when our kids get the keys to the car for the first time and we stay awake at night wondering how they are doing and what they're doing, when our kids go off to college and you wonder, who are they going to bring home? Um, and then there's the day when you have a lump in your throat as you watch your children walk down the aisle to get married. Uh, it can happen when we near the top of, uh, of the slippery slope of the pyramid of success and you look down or look back and you go, <clears throat> was it worth all that? When, we re- when retirement isn't everything you hoped and thought it would be, When our health wanes, our eyes dim, our pace slows down, and a sense of our significance is at risk. Then there are days of grief when you lose a spouse and a child, and then there are days when we need to consider what is our legacy going to be? What is my destiny? These are things that we ponder and we begin to ask questions ourselves: Is that all there is? Uh, And what have I done that is worthwhile? Uh, Will I leave a lasting legacy and what will it be? Are there any late adjustments in the course of my life that I need to make? And what lies ahead when I breathe my last breath? Now, perhaps this exposes the secret thought life of the man who's standing before you today. Uh, I... I argue that he desperately and definitely deserves senior citizen benefits like discounts at the car wash or at the theater. I appreciate all those. But at my stage of life, what has become most important is finishing well. Um, I'm not the first one to think that. I know the apostle did. And seeing the tape at the finish line has given me an eternal perspective that puts urgency into the temporal to today. Some things like serving others, declaring the gospel in foreign lands, and passing the torch of faith to the next generation of Christian leaders has become a passion of mine. So this morning, I want to ask all of you, well, regardless of what stage of life you're in, whatever, however you, old you may be, I want you to consider three questions. If you tune me out after this, I, I care. But I do definitely want you to remember those three questions. You can ponder them while I'm preaching but there are things that I urge you to consider. First of all, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? What will be most worthwhile and enduring in your life? And what do you have to do to pursue these things? Those are big thoughts. Those are profound things to consider. But that's why we talk about the glory of God today. As has been said, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I believe it was a God-motivated, God-driven, radical movement away from the glory of man, away from the glory of the Catholic Church, to an all-consuming desire for the glory of God. And the reformers tenaciously held to five essential truths about our salvation. And they are referred to as the five solas. I'll explain. By sola is meant only or alone. And that little word alone or only is the distinctive a determinative word that brought about the Reformation that changes our lives. That little word alone, only. At that time, at the time of the Reformation, very few people even read the scriptures, even the priests. Many claimed to have a faith in the church, maybe even a faith in Christ. But for them, grace was conditional and they believed God was glorious. But when the reformers added that little word, alone and only, it caused a great schism that divided the Catholic Church and has provided the background for us who are part of the Reformation movement. Now, brave uh, pioneers, of our faith and the church, they championed and died for the word alone. Just think of that, just a, a little word. But that word was a distinctive of their faith. The five solas that I've referred to are sola scriptura, which means the scriptures alone. That means that the Bible alone is our highest authority for faith and practice. The second one is sola fide, which means by faith alone. That means we are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Then there is sola gratia, which means grace alone. And that means we are saved by God's sovereign grace, his grace alone and not by our works or any merit we may have. In their solus Christus, Christ alone. That is that Jesus Christ is alone, our Lord, our Savior, and our King. And then came that fifth sola, that fifth truth, soli deo gloria, to the glory of, of God alone. Meaning that we are to live, to worship, and serve God with all we are, all we have. For his glory, that's the ultimate purpose for our existence. To glorify God is to make much about him. He doesn't live on the side of our calendar or our to-do list, but he is at the top. He's our ultimate priority. And each statement in these five solas build upon one another. But the fifth, the final, the fifth truth to the glory of God alone is the final and necessary explanation for our salvation. That's a radical concept. It explains how God's plan for our salvation is what? For his glory. It is for our good, but it is for his glory. All glory belongs to God because he alone is infinitely majestic and perfect in every way. The word to glorify or the word glory means someone of infinite worth of inestimable value. To glorify God means to revere, to treasure, to treasure God, to treasure Christ above all else as worthy, as excellent, superior, and splendid. Not only does God dwell in unapproachable, brilliant light, but he also has this unexplainable uh, unimaginable, perfect worth, holiness, and sovereign rule. We could say, many people do, that Christ is the priceless treasure of heaven and earth. To glorify God is to see that, believe it, and live accordingly. God's glory, therefore, is the sum total of all that he is and everything that he does. The preeminence of God's glory above all else became the distinctive of the Reformation. For example, John Calvin believed that the central theme of all the scriptures was the preeminence of Christ's or God's glory revealed in Christ alone. That's why we refer to the Christ as the glory of God. Calvin stood to the very end of his life, as did many others who believe that we are saved by God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Why? For the glory of God. That salvation that he worked on our behalf glorifies him. That's why we were saved, is for God's glory. John Piper describes God's glory this way The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. His glory is the goal of all things and the source and sum of of all full and lasting joy. Don't you wish you could write like that? (laughs) Puts it so nicely. But that's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism affirmed God's purpose for creating us this way. God created us for what purpose? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Why were we saved? To glorify God and what? Join in his joy. Not just now, but forever. In other words, we were created and saved to join God. To enjoy God's joy. To enjoy God's joy in glorifying himself now and forevermore. So our salvation that we enjoy was motivated and initiated by God alone. For what purpose? For his glory alone. He did not save us to improve us. Though that is a wonderful byproduct. Rather, God saved us to make us new. New so we could enjoy his glory and to join his joy. Think about that. A God who is joyful wants us to join him. Pretty nice deal, isn't it, if you think about it? So our salvation will forever Be for God's glory. Throughout all eternity, we shall be living examples of His love and His grace. For this, all the inhabitants of eternity will join together to praise and glorify God when each of us who are justified sinners. When we arrive on the celestial shores of heaven, they will break out in a chorus of likes which we've never heard. To think that God brought us home. That he actually saved sinners like us. See, all the glory will go to him. The Apostle Paul talked this way in Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. (coughs) Having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Who works all things according to the counsel of whose will? His will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? Might be the praise of his glory. You get the idea here? We were created for God's glory. We are created to enjoy God and enjoy the things that pleases him. Now to make God the all-consuming object of our affection, we must be convinced that he alone is infinitely glorious. And that's why I'm here this morning. To convince you if you're not convinced already. Here's why the Bible tells us just a few reasons why we should glorify him. Well, the first is that God is eternally glorious. He's the self-existing, the self-sufficient, glorious God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have forever perfectly and rightly enjoyed mutual glorification. Now, when I say that, you hear that statement like this, you're inclined to put your... Heels in the sand, say, Whoa, wait a minute. God enjoys mutual glorification? Wouldn't such joy be motivated by egomania? Is God a narcissist? No. Haven't we been taught that self glorification is wrong? Well, the answers to these questions are profound. And they're counterintuitive. You would have to think about this and get the the scriptures to give us an insight on this. The Bible says in God's presence is the fullness of joy. If you want to understand what joy is, you just go to the presence of God and you can go, oh, my goodness. That's what it'll be. That's what it is now. God is the only one. For whom such self-exaltation is not only the highest virtue, but also the highest good. He exists co-eternal in three persons, yet one in essence and substance as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He needs no one or anything to add to his glory. He's not lacking Self esteem. He's not desiring that we worship him to make him feel good. He is zealous for his joy or for his glory because he alone is God and therefore the ultimate good. It is pure joy for the Father to glorify the Son. Likewise, the Son has no greater pleasure or delight than to glorify the Father. That's what he did on the cross. That's the the distance that Christ would go to glorify his Father. And the Holy Spirit, he rejoices with unrestrained pleasure in putting all this together, applying it to our lives. Now, let me make an attempt at a personal level to illustrate my point about mutual glorification. Let's say that I brought here this morning all of my uh, Facebook posts of my family that I've made for years. And I also brought along uh, 12 hours of home videos of our family history, of uh, weddings, children, uh, great moments in sports, and individual accomplishments. And to top it off, I am prepared to share with you great events, stories about my 14 grandchildren. And right now you would be thinking, uh, we're happy for you, Pastor Darn, but that would be an absolute bore. So what's the difference between the joy that I have in telling you about my family, than you, sitting there with your eyes half open, yawning and saying, oh, I don't want to hear any more about that family. So what's the difference for me and for you? Well, the difference is pretty simple. My love. My love for my family. I love to talk about my family because I love them. I want you to know them. I think they're pretty awesome people, but don't you feel the same way? Hopefully you do. About you, your family, and children, if you have some. But that's because the ones we love, we like to glorify. It's the best I can do from a personal level to explain what's happening within the Godhead. You see, God is the ultimate good, so it is Right? to glorify his supremacy above all things. And this seems foreign to a generation preoccupied with the pursuit of its own happiness. To many, God exists for us to save us, to love us, to meet our needs, to be there for us, to help us accomplish our goals and ambitions. But when faced with the reality of a God centered theology from this book, His glory is His purpose and should be ours. Our God is eternally glorious. Secondly, our God is perfectly holy. He's separated from all that is sinful, and he's unable to sin and will never tempt us to sin. He cannot be tempted to sin. When man is given just a glimpse of God's glory, he's perceived as being perfectly holy. He inhabits unapproachable, resplendent, holy light. The psalmist says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. That's how he's perceived. Moses declared, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who could compare? Who is like you? Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, and doing wonders. See, God's glory is both his Invisible, infinite manifestation of his greatness as well as the sum total of all his invisible, finite excellence in holy character. The Lord himself declared in Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another. Glory robbers... Beware. Nothing can ever add to or diminish God's glory or his joy. The Lord himself is transcendent, he has transcendent glory. And when you say, Well, I've never seen his glory, the Bible says, Oh, you have. You may not have seen it or not recognized it. But the Bible says when you read the scriptures and you read from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, if you read it correctly, you're reading the story of the glory of God. When you read this book, you see the glory of God revealed in Christ, promised and fulfilled. From beginning to end of all history, it's been about Christ Third, our God is glorified in all of creation. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, the stars, they show his handiwork. Romans 1.20 tells us for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And then we're told, sadly, fallen humanity has exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God to worship corruptible things, like idols made in the image of mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. When man makes this exchange, he becomes foolish and his heart is darkened. And for our God is glorified by the angels. We don't see that, but it's going ongoing. Right now, there are elect angels whose created purpose continually is to surround God's throne and cry out to one another. What? Holy, holy holy is the lord god almighty who was who is and will be glorious to the very end glory to come on the night when the father sent his son into time and space as a baby boy god said let all the angels of god worship him because glory is coming My glory is going to be revealed. And over the hills of Bethlehem, the heavenly hosts sang at his birth, what? Glory to God in the highest. You see, that is the ultimate purpose and the angels love to do it. But there are also saints here on heaven like you, like me. While we go about our daily routines, God is to be intentionally glorified in all we do. The Apostle Paul put it this way. Whether you eat or you drink, or whatever you do, what? Do all for the glory of God. He alone should be the object of our love, our affection, our worship, and our service. But when you do that, When we live out our created purpose, you will find more joy today for the rest of your life than you could expect this side of heaven. So if you are struggling with depression, discouragement, you know what my recommendations do? If you want more joy in your life, find a way to glorify God. Focus on him. Focus on how wonderful and great he is. And you will find that joy will come into your life. If you're depressed, find someone to serve for the glory of God. And because we are saved for God's glory, we are called to live for his glory. The future glory Christ promised us should be enough motivation for the rest of our lives to glorify him. In other words, what more does God need to do? What more does he have to say? It is in living for God's glory that we have hope. We find joy. In even days of adversity, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Corinth during times of great difficulty. You see, the Christians, the early Christians at that time were trying to understand why were they going through all of this? Why were they having such complicated problems? Why were they being persecuted for their faith? So here's the brief answer. We read it earlier, and we read it now. For this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. I'll add far beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I am going to give to you very quickly three life-changing thoughts that come from our text that we just read. Here they are. Our present adversity is momentary, but our future glory is eternal. You have to think eternally. Our present adversity is preparing us for future glory. What's happening now is preparing us for even greater glory in the future. And three, in our present adversity, we must keep our perspective On the glory that awaits us and not being consumed by the pressures and problems that are bearing down on us today. Let's take that first one. Our adversity is momentary, but our future glory is eternal. Paul considered his afflictions to be relatively light compared to the weight of the glory awaiting him. Now, have you read the story, the background for the Apostle Paul, what he went through? He describes it in this uh, second letter. Uh, When I read it, it doesn't sound anything like light to me. He endured many imprisonments, and I've evaded some. Uh, Beatings with hands and rods, flogging with cruel whips, thrown out of city limits, stoned by the people to the point of death. Light? Light? He spent days shipwrecked, adrift at sea. He faced constant dangers from swollen rivers, robbers, and constant threats from his people, as well as from false uh, prophets. He toiled day and night, sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, as well as exposure to cold, damp, and hot, humid climates that he traveled. And on top of all this, maybe even the most difficult adversity was he was overwhelmed with care and love for the churches that he planted and that he had visited. He watched them being persecuted. He watched them going through very difficult things. He even watched false teachers come in and behind his work try to destroy the church. And he couldn't get there. And when I read this resume of the apostle. Uh, Of his adversity, I, I wonder, I mean, how could he have survived it had it not been for his unwavering belief in future glory? He also considered his adversity to be momentary compared to eternal glory. His faith not only enabled him to consider the degree of his adversity as light, But his thought of future glory reminded him that what he's going through is momentary and that what he was going through, even his versity, was serving God's purposes. I guess if you consider eternity as forever now, then I guess what we're going through now seems rather short. To always be in the moment in heaven, No death, no sorrow, no sickness, no cancer, none of those things. But what is adversity intended to do in our life? What are the difficult things you're going through? Is there a purpose for it? Paul would say yes. He wrote to the Corinthians this advice adversity is intended to teach us to live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit and not rely on our own strength, wisdom, or good intentions. I'm constantly learning that, relearning it, reminded of it. Adversity prepares us to comfort others with the comfort by which God comforted us. And adversity is our opportunity It's our time. It's God's way for us to glorify him when you were going through that time to declare to others and to yourself that your faith and your hope is in Christ alone. Paul's faith challenges us to depend more on God's grace as we go through these difficult times in our life. The second truth that we want to talk about is present adversity is preparing us for future glory. See, Paul saw God's glory outweighed his present adversity. So he would put on a scale. Okay, here's my adversity. Huh. Feels tough, it's heavy. And then he would put future glory and it would go like this. See, if you see what's ahead, it will make these things seem lighter and more momentary. Eternal f- glory is far beyond comparison to our earthly affliction, says Paul. You see, our affliction is comparatively light to what Jesus suffered for us on the cross. That was his glory. Our affliction is comparatively light to what the reformers had to suffer. Our affliction is comparatively light to all the blessings that we enjoy here in America. And our affliction is comparatively light to what lies ahead for us. This is not just from Paul, this was Jesus. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... By the way, who's the treasure? Christ. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Things that truly count are not the visible or temporal things we are tempted to treasure. Things that really count are invisible. (laughs) Eternal treasures. Paul reminds us in Colossians. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, I love the last phrase of that. Can you see it up there? What does it say? Let's do it together. Then... Also in that's it that's what we're coming down to that's worth going through what you're going through as a young man I adopted a, a motto of a man by the name of Jim Elliot I read his book young man I, I had no real purpose and I read his and I go I don't have any reason to live or die he was one of five Missionaries martyred in Ecuador, and it's interestingly, not too far from where I travel today, to teach and train church leaders in a tribal group in the jungle of Peru. Here's his motto: "A man is no fool who gives up what he can't keep, what? To gain what he can not lose." That's right out of pages of the apostles' playbook. Third, our present adversity, in our present adversity, we must keep our perspective on what? On the glory that awaits us and not on the pressures and problems bearing down upon us, and I would say today. When our eyes and affections are set on things that are seen, we tend to neglect the unseen things that are most worthwhile and enduring. I don't know if you've ever heard of the life of David Livingston, one of the greatest pioneer missionaries to Africa. He looked back at his life, which was much like the Apostle Paul's, and he evaluated the hardships he went through for the gospel. If you read his story, it is like, really? All he went through, sickness and everything. Here's what he has to say. Anxieties, sickness, or danger now, and then may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for what? A moment. All these things are nothing when compared to the glory which shall be revealed revealed in And force, and his last words, they say it all. I've never made a sacrifice. I think if I had written that, I'd say, and I was glad to make the sacrifice. He just said, "I, I can't consider that to be a sacrifice. He did not regard his hardships for the cause of Christ to be a sacrifice because when he saw the light of, Eternal glory goes, well, (laughs) with that in mind, and what Christ suffered for me, nothing. History is filled with many more examples of people who willingly suffered and died for their faith, not considering it to be a sacrifice. Now, this illustration I'm going to give you from history, it's a little jarring, okay? It's Reformation Sunday. What was it like to live in those days? Let me give you just one of many, many examples of the price for believing in alone, Christ alone. A woman who was part of the Reformation died for her faith in 1543 because she refused to pray to the Virgin Mary. Her name was Helen Strike. She and her husband were imprisoned and sentenced to death for their faith. Helen asked to die side by side with her husband. Her request was denied. Her husband was sentenced to death by hanging on the gallows. And she was condemned to die by drowning. Before her husband died, she was permitted to kiss her husband and to give him these parting words, the last words she gad. Husband, be glad. For we have lived many joyful days, and this day in which we must die, we ought to esteem the most joyful of all because we shall have joy forever. Therefore, she says, I will not bid you good night for we will shortly meet in the kingdom of heaven. Then her husband was hung before her eyes. She was forced to hand over her newborn to a nurse entrusted to the child's care. Helen was led to a nearby pond. They bound her hands and feet. Then they put her in a large gunny sack with rocks inside. They threw her into the water like a bag of garbage we shall have joy forevermore I will not bid you good night for we shortly meet in the kingdom of heaven that is a living example of the difference of alone makes in our theology is it Christ alone is it by faith alone Is it by grace alone, in Christ alone, or is it also for the glory of God only? If you live by that little truth, it's huge. C.S. Lewis also made this astute observation. The statistics of death are impressive. Eventually, it's one out of one. That's the reality. An epitaph on an Indiana cemetery tombstone reads, pause stranger when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. And then a clever person probably crept into the cemetery and etched on that stone their response. To follow you, I am not content Until I know which way you went. (laughs) Is this the time of your life? Today. If it hasn't been already, is this a time in your life when you begin to care less about getting ahead and more about what you leave behind? We're back to those questions again. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? What are you going to invest in? What will be the most worthwhile and enduring thing in your life? And what do you have to do? What changes, corrections need to be done to pursue these things? If you are driven to live for the glory of God... Then when the door of heaven opens up to you, this is what you want to hear Jesus say. I think some of you know what he's going to say. Well, then, thy good and faithful servant, enter into my joy. That's why you were created. That's why I saved you. That's why you're here to glorify me. And you will find this to be the ultimate, infinite joy you could ever imagine. But if death's door opens into darkness for you, this is what you don't want to hear. Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You don't want to hear Jesus say, I never knew you. Here are the words of an anonymous writer that have brought me some comfort. Think about these as I read them. We're closing, so. I apply it to me, his words. What can it mean to be like him? I, to be like my dear Lord? I could not believe it. Had I not the promise of his precious word? I, with follies and failures, I, with my weakness and sin, to be like the Lord in his beauty, perfect without and within? He, whom the angels adoring veil from his glory their eyes? He, who one glad day will take me to dwell in his home in the skies? Oh, I am weary. I'm weary with waiting, sick of this old self of mine, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly and give me a spirit like thine. Do you ever feel that way? Well, I do. (coughs) Let this be our closing thought. If you have questions afterwards, I'm available. Certainly your pastor and leaders are available. The things that we presented are life-changing. It's the difference of joy and the difference from vanity, vanity all is vanity. What is your purpose? What are you living for? Are you living for anything worth dying for? Let these be our words sort of our doxology. <clears throat> Let's repeat it Let's read it together. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.